0: Hello, and welcome to episode 3 of Medicine Matters. I'm Dr. Jane Godsland, Clinical Director of Springer Medicine, and in this episode, we'll be talking about resistant hypertension, a difficult to treat and often misunderstood phenomenon that continues to frustrate cardiologists. In its simplest definition, resistant hypertension is blood pressure that remains raised despite concurrent use of three antihypertensives from different classes with one of which being a diuretic. All must be taken at maximally tolerated doses. True resistant hypertension can only be diagnosed in the absence of white coat hypertension and after excluding non-adherence to treatment, not the simplest of tasks. Patients with resistant hypertension often have a secondary cause of high blood pressure and they're usually high risk for adverse cardiovascular events. It's really crucial therefore cardiologists and internists are aware of how to manage patients presenting with this difficult clinical scenario. I discuss the latest developments in the field with Professors Maurice Brown and Brian Williams. Today, we're gonna to be exploring the topic of resistant hypertension. And I wonder if the first thing we can look at is why our listeners, why doctors should concern themselves with this, Morris.
1: Resistant hypertension is when the blood pressure is not at target despite being treated with three drugs including a diuretic. And this group of patients are of interest for a number of reasons. From a public health point of view it's probably because they are at increased cardiovascular risk namely they're more likely to suffer heart attacks and strokes which is the main reason why we treat hypertension at all. Personally, I'm also very interested in resistant hypertension because we know pretty well what is causing it and we'll probably come to discussion of that. And it means we can be more rational about choice of treatment when we understand something about the underlying causes.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So why don't you tell us a bit about that? What are the most commonly considered causes?
1: So your evidence points to it being a failure to respond to conventional treatment because of sodium and water uh, retention. And there are a number of reasons why that might occur, but in the majority of patients, they fail to respond adequately to the commonly used diuretics in hypertension, thiazide or thiazide-like diuretics, because their main driver to sodium water retention is inappropriate release of a hormone, aldosterone, which is the body's main regulator of sodium balance and for me and I'm exaggerating slightly all patients with resistant hypertension have what's called primary aldosteronism until proven otherwise and and that goes along with the therapies we'll discuss either old ones or new ones which target the aldosterone axis.
0: So I'm interested in the idea of this being resistant hypertension rather than untreated hypertension so Brian, can you, how do you know that these patients are resistant rather than non-adherent to their medication?
2: Well, I think that's an important point. And I think when we first started studying this condition or trying to characterize it, one of the things we recognized quite early is there is a kind of pseudo-resistant state. And uh, so pseudo-resistance is somebody who looks like they've got resistant hypertension but are probably not resistant. And there are two main reasons for that. The first is... They may have what has been called white coat hypertension. So we did a study some years ago showing that 25% of patients who were labeled as resistant hypertension, if you measured their blood pressure away from the doctor's office, either with ambulatory blood pressure measurement or home measurement, that they actually had a normal blood pressure. In other words, the treatment was working and they weren't resistant. So as part of the diagnostic workup, It's absolutely mandatory in these patients that we do some form of of out-of-office measurement to make sure that they are truly resistant. And then the second element of the pseudo-resistance is, unfortunately, um, despite prescribing three or more drugs, including a diuretic, many of the patients don't take them, particularly over the longer term. And so we learned quite early that um, some of the patients were not necessarily resistant if we got them onto the optimal therapy. Uh, And the way we discovered that was, I think, twofold. One was actually doing urine testing um, and showing that quite a lot of these patients were not taking three drugs minimum. Not all of them were completely non-adherent, but some of them, or many of them, were not taking all of their medication. And then the second thing we did was was a thing called directly observed therapy, where we asked the patients... To bring their medication to the clinic without taking it before they came and then take the treatment in front of us and then either do home blood pressure measurements or do ambulatory measurement and a fairly high proportion of those patients actually got fairly spectacular blood pressure reductions and I guess in many cases because it was maybe the first time they'd ever taken all of their treatment. So I think once you eliminate Those two major causes, and I think, Morris, they are probably the two most important. Uh, Once you've eliminated those, um, I think the true prevalence of people who do not respond to three drugs at optimal dose or best tolerated dose is less than 10% of the treated population. But it's an important percentage because, as Morris said, they will probably have had lifelong poor control of their blood pressure with chronic damage. And I think the other reason why they're at high risk is they tend just to be the people who have the sort of aggressive vascular remodeling and they're more likely to have left ventricular hypertrophy, they're more likely to have evidence of renal impairment, probably because of the long-standing poor control of pressure.
0: And do you think that prevalence, that 10% that you mentioned, is that we seeing that increase or is that a pretty steady incidence? Well it will
2: increase, well, it will increase because if you look at the characteristic patients that get this condition, although some of them are young, there's no doubt there's a preponderance of older people. So there's probably something about the capacitance of the circulation to accommodate the sodium and the water, this the excess volume that many of these patients have through the mechanisms that Morris has mentioned.
1: Wait, one mechanistic reason why resistant hypertension might be a problem and particularly severe is that crudely you can divide, from a physics point of view, the causes of blood pressure into those which increase peripheral resistance, the narrowing of very small arteries and arterioles, and those which increase the amount of salt and water in the circulation. And I sometimes draw the analogy with the garden hose and says that every, say that every gardener understands that pressure is force over area, and you can increase the jet of water coming out of the hose either by turning up the tap or by kinking the end of the hose, which is what the sprinkler does. In reality, in the circulation, the two things are often going together. And in the case of arterial excess, the evidence is pointing towards the aldosterone causing more salt and water, so it's a volume problem, but also the aldosterone increases the sensitivity of the resistance vessels to salt. So you have a double whammy of both increased vasoconstriction and increased volume. And drugs which target aldosterone then may be particularly effective because both the vasoconstriction and volume factors are benefited.
2: I think the point that I would add to what Morris has said because actually the, the the aldosterone axis is not that well understood in the wider clinical community. And I think the interpretation of aldosterone is often confounded by the fact that people think that when we talk about excess aldosterone, we talk about high levels of aldosterone, and we don't necessarily do that. I mean, we're, we're talking about an in- inappropriate level of aldosterone. So there may be inadequate suppression of aldosterone when there is salt loading that may not manifest as a, as a, as an elevated level on on a traditional report form it may look within the normal range but contextually it's abnormal because why would you have any aldosterone around if you've got volume overload and your renin is suppressed so so i think trying to get those concepts across as being quite challenging and that's probably one of the reasons why not everybody will accept that the problem is primarily driven by aldosterone. We quite clearly showed that the problem is predominantly driven by volume and sodium overload, and it responds best to more diuretic. And, uh, and I think there's good evidence for that in a number of studies.
0: So it's clear that there are still quite a lot of unanswered questions in this field.
2: There's less unanswered questions than there were.
0: It's fair to say that we know that there is resistant hypertension. That is a you know verified diagnosis. What is the mainstay of treatment, uh, Brian? If you can tell me for those patients, in the current day.
2: So I think, based on what Morris has said in terms of the mechanism, the studies we did in the UK demonstrated that if you block aldosterone with spironolactone in relatively low dose actually, but it's in the context of already being treated with a thiazide, then you get the most impressive reductions in blood pressure. More impressive than, for example, you got with either an alpha blocker, which was a vasodilator, or a beta blocker, which was another way of blocking the renin system. So by targeting the aldosterone system with spinal we got a very effective, fairly consistent reduction in blood pressure in these patients. And we also did some mechanistic studies to demonstrate that the predominant mechanism through which aldosterone was working was offloading volume and by inference sodium. So, and I think the other thing I would add to that, and then, and then the question is, was it unique to spinal lactone? Or in fact, if you gave another diuretic that acted elsewhere on the tubule, would you get a similar effect, or maybe not as powerful, but at least some benefit. I personally think you probably would because I think the tubule blockade with a diuretic isn't complete, so you're going to get some distal reabsorption of sodium. So if you use another diuretic that works on another segment of the tubule, this concept of multi-segment blockade of the nephron, then you always get more naturesis. And probably in this population, because they're sodium-loaded, you'll get a more effective blood pressure lowering. And in fact, you know, I'm pretty convinced that's one of the mechanisms, for example, whereby SGLT2 inhibitors, which are used for diabetes, if you look at the data where they're used for diabetes in somebody who's also receiving diuretic, because they're a proximal tubular diuretic, and the other diuretic is working further down the tubule, you get quite impressive offloading of sodium and water. And I think they might be quite effective drugs, for example in people with resistant hypertension.
0: And so, Morris, you've obviously had a really exciting paper in the New England Journal, your recent trial of Baxtrostat. Can you tell me the mechanism of action behind that and what the trial showed?
1: So, Baxtrostat is an aldosterone synthase inhibitor, and, and it may be helpful to draw an analogy with the comparison of ACE inhibitors and angiotensin receptor blockers. And in that case, the enzyme inhibitor came along first and then the receptor blocker. But in principle, if there's a culprit hormone or mediator, there's always two ways of taking it out. One, one is by blocking its formation and the other is by blocking its effect. And so for years, it's been obvious that it might be attractive to have a drug which inhibits synthesis of aldosterone rather than the receptor. The big challenge has been that the final enzyme in the synthetic pathway called aldosterone synthase is 93% identical to the enzyme making cortisol, the final enzyme in the cortisol synthetic pathway. And the initial drugs that were developed as inhibitors of the enzyme turned out to be insufficiently selective. And interestingly, one of them was relaunched by Novartis and is now used for the treatment of Cushing's disease where there is excess cortisol. But around a decade or so ago the companies began to have success in making molecules with a hundred fold or greater selectivity which is probably enough to give you a range of doses at which cortisol will not be inhibited and that's what the phase one trials of Baxtrostat showed when it was still a Roche drug in 2012-2013 but Roche then pulled a the plug on all its cardiovascular metabolic development and the drug sat on the shelf effectively for four years until it was licensed to a single-drug American startup, Sincor, and they undertook first uh, a multiple standing dose human volunteer study to confirm its serial activity, and then went into a phase two study of around 250 patients with resistant hypertension. And, and the primary question was whether baxterstat would give a substantial fall in blood pressure when compared to placebo and the answer was yes, there was an 11 millimetre greater fall in blood pressure on the top dose of Baxtrostat compared to placebo and, and that was associated with around 60 to 70% reduction in hardosterone.
0: So this was a placebo controlled trial you mentioned, do you have any data yet on comparator drugs?
1: So everyone asked that question. <laughs> And of course, we would love to know whether Baxterostat is more or less effective than spironolactone. The straight answer is it has not been compared, and it's unlikely to be compared, because if you look historically at what companies do, their sales force will come up with a dozen arguments why their drug is is better than the the nearest competition. But they very rarely take those on in a true head-to-head study. And there are two reasons for that. One is that there's a lot of vagaries, chance, good luck, bad luck, and there are examples in the history of drug development where companies have done this and lost. And for, for a startup to do this, it's certainly a complete no-no because it's their complete investment, and if luck goes against them, they've lost billions. Uh, but even for large pharma, it's a risk they often don't take on. The second, you might say, more scientific reason is that even, let's say, if bactrostat were slightly superior to spironolactone, it would be by a few millimetres. And in calculating the sample size of a study needed to demonstrate that, sample size proportioned to the square of the difference you're trying to show, it would be an enormous study and, and wouldn't really justify the cost of doing that. So my prediction, and, and the company is now being bought by AstraZeneca, is that even AZ will not take on spironolactone as a competitor.
0: Right. But, I mean, there's clearly excitement around targeting these endothelium pathways. Um, Brian, what other developments have there been in this area? What other drugs are we looking at on the horizon?
2: So you mentioned the endothelin, um antagonists. I mean, they've had a fairly checkered history in resistant hypertension. One of them that I recall with derisantan um, caused a lot of edema, and that's kind of what you'd expect to happen. Um, because they're predominantly inhibiting endothelin, which is a vasoconstrictor. So you get vasodilatation. Drugs that vasodilate often cause some t- uh, sodium retention. It's going to be happening even more aggressively in patients with uh, resistant hypertension for the reasons we've already discussed. So they've been difficult uh, to manage in the context of resistant hypertension until we saw this dual endothelin antagonist in the precision study, uh, which did provide data to suggest that it was effective at lowering blood pressure in patients with resistant hypertension. But two things surprised me about that study. One is that the most effective blood pressure lowering on the 24-hour blood pressure analysis with that drug occurred at night. And that's interesting because we're beginning to understand that Drugs that lower blood pressure more effectively at night tend to be diuretic, tend to offload sodium, uh, and that's probably got something to do with the the capacitance of the circulation again. And as you get older, with more volume retention, you're less able to drop your blood pressure at night because the circulation is full. Um, And so it's a bit surprising that a drug that has no diuretic mechanism um, should lower blood pressure at night. And, and, and I, I wonder about whether when we begin to look into that data a bit more, whether some of the benefit of the endothelin antagonist in that study was actually due to the fact that some of the patients got more diuretic um, because they were kind of treating the inevitable edema that usually occurs with these drugs. And as a consequence, that produced more blood pressure lowering and more nocturnal Blood pressure lowering. So I think, I for me, the jury's still out on whether endothelin antagonists will be clinically useful in the context of um, resistant hypertension. They just don't seem to fit the profile of of a drug that would be targeting the underlying mechanism. I don't know what you think, Morris.
1: Ever since endothelium was discovered, there has been huge excitement around what is, I think, the most potent endogenous vasoconstrictor, and it sort of seemed Quotes obvious, that it must be causing hypertension of some format.
0: We know now that you feel pretty confident in what's causing this resistant hypertension, you feel excited about the future.
1: Yeah, I think there's other drugs
2: in development as well that actually lend themselves to the same mechanism that we've been talking about. I mean, I mentioned SGLT2 inhibitors, which are not in development, they're in they're available. Um, But they're a proximal tubular diuretic. You know, most sodium is reabsorbed in the proximal tubule. Massive amounts of sodium are reabsorbed in the proximal tubule. So you block that uh, sodium glucose co-transport there, you get huge amounts of distal uh, delivery of sodium. So if you then got a thiazide diuretic on board, that's going to be overwhelmed by the amount of sodium coming down the tubule. And as a consequence, that dual nephron blockade is going to produce significant sodium offloading. So I would anticipate that those drugs, if they were given to patients with resistant hypertension, would have a blood pressure lowering effect. And interestingly, I suspect a lot of that blood pressure lowering effect would be at night uh, because of the mechanisms we've discussed. And I think quite often the drug companies will argue that the benefits of drugs are not related to the blood pressure lowering. But actually, they're not measuring the blood pressure lowering because they measure the blood pressure in clinic, which is actually an underestimate of the true impact of drugs, particularly diuretics, on blood pressure, and particularly in the context of resistant hypertension. So I think the, they may be very interesting to look at because, of course, they won't have the potassium problem that we traditionally associate with blocking the aldosterone system, and they won't have the glucose problem that we traditionally associate with thiocytes. so it might be quite an interesting approach.
0: Really exciting. I think you're so right. There's so much discussion now around um, not only pharmacological mechanisms of action, but also about behavioural change in patients and how they, the relationship they have with their medication and their health.
2: Right. Just finishing on that. I mean, I I think we shouldn't forget that whilst we're talking about drug therapy for resistant hypertension and these patients are already on three drugs and we're talking about another fourth. Patients can help themselves substantially by reducing their sodium intake. And, and there's quite good trial evidence that, you know, reducing sodium intake, even modestly, can have quite a powerful effect on blood pressure in this particular population of patients. So that anything we say about drugs is complementary to advice that must be given about sodium intake in particular.
0: Really important point. Thank you. Well, thank you both very much. Thank you, Prof Brown, Prof Williams. It's been great to talk to you. We've got lots more in this field uh, that we'll be excited to see what comes out next. Thank you so much for joining me. This podcast is intended for healthcare professionals for their ongoing medical education and entertainment. It should not replace the professional advice of a doctor or pharmacist and may not be used as a basis for diagnosis or any change to the prescribed treatment of disease. The views expressed by our moderators and guests are their opinions and do not represent the position of any third parties. The information given in the podcast is subject to change as the scientific field and clinical advances progress.